Welcome to a special series of EMS World podcasts. I am Hillary Gates, Senior Editorial and Program Director for EMS World. The COVID-19 pandemic has challenged and impacted the EMS profession in unique and lasting ways. So what are the best practices for us as clinicians, leaders, managers, medical directors, and for EMS as a profession? EMS World is proud to bring you the latest information from our COVID-19 webinars, now available in audio-only podcast episodes. This episode, How EMS Can Launch Telehealth and Transport Alternatives During the COVID Pandemic, features Jonathan Washko and is sponsored by McKesson. Hello and welcome to the latest in EMS World's series of special webinars on topics related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's presentation is how EMS can launch telehealth and transport alternatives during the COVID pandemic. My name is Jonathan Bassett, Editorial Director at EMS World, and we're very happy to have you joining us today. We would like to thank McKesson for sponsoring today's presentation. During the webinar, feel free to submit questions and comments for our speaker by using the question submission section on your screen. And at the end of the presentation, we'll try to answer as many of your questions as we can in the time allowed. Today, we are very excited to welcome our featured speaker. Jonathan Washko is Assistant Vice President of Operations for Northwell Health Center for EMS in New York, New York. He has held leadership positions at local, regional, and corporate levels with all sizes of EMS agencies and is considered the leading industry expert on EMS system design, system status management, and high-performance EMS concepts. We are also uh, proud to have Jonathan as a member, uh, member of the EMS World Editorial Advisory Board, and we are certainly happy to have him uh, taking time out of his very busy schedule and joining us today. So with that, I will turn it over to our presenter, Jonathan, thanks again for joining us today, and please take it away. Thanks, Jonathan. So uh, welcome, everyone. And uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, telemedicine and EMS. Uh, and the first thing I want to do is thank everyone of our uh, listeners today and our viewers. Um, you know, you guys are out there on the front lines doing an amazing job. Um, you know, um, I just, my hat's off to everyone that's on the front line dealing with this day in and day out. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm in the back end trying to uh, put up as much things as we can to support our front end staff, but just thank you to everyone out there and, and putting it on the line. Um, these are serious times uh, and uh, you got your bravery and your strength is, is just amazing. So thank you. Also, thank you to everybody that supports uh, the front line, um, you know, our logistics teams, our training, our quality, uh, our 911 centers, um, you know, our mechanics, uh, everybody in the back, on the back end, our billers, everybody that's helping us as EMS agencies uh, give us the capabilities to, uh, you know, put our force forward and uh, be at the tip of the spear, as they like to say. Uh, but without the, you have to have the shaft on the spear as well uh, to be able to, 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 you know, get things done. And so thank you to everyone, uh, as well as our healthcare workers on the front line and our doctors and nurses and all the staff that support them. Uh, obviously, we can't meet this mission without them. Um, I'll be getting phone calls from many different places around the United States, uh, 
people I know and people I don't know asking, you know, what's going on in New York City? Uh, what can we learn from you? And so um, I've kind of started to put together uh, our elevator speech, if you will, on that. So before we get into telemedicine, uh, we're going to talk about some things um, that, um, you know, we've learned. First thing is you've got to take this seriously. Um, I have people calling me, you know, asking for advice. I'm giving the advice and they're saying, wow, that seems a bit extreme. Um, and it's not. You've got to take this seriously. Um, and some of the things we've done, in my opinion, have saved us from losing uh, staff and our ability to, uh, or our inability not to respond because we did these things very early on. Um, I took a lot of criticism and our team took a lot of criticism uh, for doing these things, but uh, I'm glad we did it. And, you know, had we not needed it, I'd still be glad we did it, um, even though, you know, I'm taking some heat for this. Um, but you've got to, as leaders, you've got to step up and take a leadership role and make sometimes tough decisions. And um, I'm going to implore everyone, you know, people ask, what can we do for New York? Well, what you can do for New York is listen to our lessons and then go learn from those lessons and don't do the same things that we didn't do or do some of the things we did do uh, and do them now. So the first thing is you've got to protect your providers and you've got to do this now if you're not. Um, we went on to a mask mandate very early in this situation um, against the CDC advice, against advice of others. Um, but we did it because in speaking with uh, the physicians and the um, ID docs and things like that, infectious disease who know these things, we went immediately on to a mask mandate. This was for everyone, our 911 center, uh, our for responding EMS crews, our administrators, our billers, Everyone in the building in our 911 center was mandated on a mask two and a half weeks ago, well before the, the, the actual pandemic broke. Um, and the reason for that was because of the quarantine. Now, the quarantines are adjusting as we move forward. The initial quarantine, if you had a, a, a high risk to moderate exposure, was 14 weeks. Imagine if you had a sick person in your 911 center and you had to quarantine the entire shift or the platoon uh, in one shot. And what would that do to you? So we were very concerned about this early on. The next thing we did was decompress the building uh, from a population density standpoint. We figured out how to find 50 laptops because we weren't um, quite ready for work from home uh, mechanisms yet. And uh, we were able to find 50 laptops and we sent everybody home, all of our billers and administrators that don't, don't, don't need to be on the front line in order to you know, reduce the density of the building. The other thing we did early on was we instituted uh, temperature screening and, um, you know, infectious disease screening for every staff member, especially coming into the 911 centers where we started that. Now we're doing it for all our field staff. Um, and we have controlled choke points, ingress and egress points through every area of our deployment centers, as well as our 911 centers, where uh, our staff are required to take their temperature, record that, um, into a system that keeps track of everything as well as a symptom checker, things like that, uh, using a, a form, electronic form, diet, you know, with some logic in it. Um, and as they fill that form out, it tells them, are they, can they proceed into the building or can they not? And if not, it gives them instructions on what they need to do. Um, obviously, you want to follow, minimally follow the CDC guidelines for PPE. We've tried to exceed them in certain things. Like, for example, we have head coverings for our, for our staff. Uh, it doesn't really say that if you look at CDC guidelines for EMS, things like that, we're, we're kind of stepping up and trying to go over 
Obviously, you need to have policies and procedures for exposures, uh, how to use PPE, the, the interface for the hospital. Um, we are, this is a rapidly changing and evolving event for us. It will likely be that for you. And you've got to keep pace with change and you've got to have mechanisms to communicate out to your staff because if not, you get a tremendous amount of confusion. And I'd say we've been very much ahead of that um, in using uh, technology um, to communicate with our staff. And it's really saved uh, us from uh, a lot of challenges um, in, in confusion, things like that. This is one that really uh, was tough for me to, 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 to swallow. Um, we asked for help early on and, and didn't get it. Um, and I won't go into the reasons why after this is all over, I will, uh, I'll have my day. But um, as of right now, um, you know, we did have a few step up. Thank you to uh, Ambulance and um, Senior Care uh, who came to uh, our aid as well as Westchester EMS. Uh, I'm going to call on them specifically because they, they, they responded to the call um, there's a few others that did that I apologize if I don't uh, call you out. Um, but I can tell you, uh, in, in mass, um, when we asked for assistance, uh, we didn't get it and there was reasons why we didn't get it. Some of people are protecting their own resources for their own situation. I saw this in nine 11, for example, I was in Richmond during nine 11 and, uh, DC requested ambulances and, and in the agency I was at at the time. Um, the mayor refused to send resources to protect the city. So we're seeing some of those kinds of things. Um, and, and we've got to be very careful where we're pulling resources from as people come into the city, because obviously, uh, as the governor here says, we need help right now. But this is happening simultaneously across the country. And we have to, you know, load balance our resources uh, as this pandemic spreads so that we can make sure we have uh, resources for the people that need them. But um, you know, I would say don't count on immediate mutual aid. This is very much like Katrina. You're on your own until the FEMA, get, the FEMA assets get in. Um, we were on our own for days until that happened. And, um, you know, I think things are starting to level out. We have the FEMA assets in here at this point with ambulances. We're really rushing to get capacity up. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, the other thing people don't fully appreciate, um, this is a respiratory pandemic and you need ventilators and you need critical care. We are doing a tremendous amount of load balancing or, um, or lateral transfers. And what does that mean? So that means a hospital gets full. It's to a point of it's danger to the patients and to the providers. And we've got to get people out of that hospital to, to other hospitals that don't, that, that have a lot more capacity. Um, so, you know, we can load balance and take certain hospitals that are overflowing and moving patients to places where they're not overflowing. For example, many of our rural community hospitals on Long Island have capacity. And so we're taking patients from Queens literally out to the Hamptons um, and up into Westchester and so on and, and, and redistributing. We're moving patients out of existing hospitals in our large tertiaries and quaternaries um, to other places to make room. We're literally ripping out auditoriums in our in our hospitals, uh, medical auditoriums of, you know, thousands of seats to make room for more beds. I mean, the, the, uh, the efforts going on are astronomical. Some of this makes it on the news and some of this doesn't, but you need to understand this is, this is a serious situation, people. Um, so one of the other things is you absolutely need a centralized command and control system for patient distribution and load balancing between healthcare facilities on the inbound traffic side 
as well as on the outbound side. Um, it's imperative. Um, you need people to work together and collaboratively. If you're fortunate enough in a, to be in a community where there's a single point of command and control for this, like your medical control, um, deciding where ambulances go, you really need to start thinking about this. And you also need to think about the concept of what they call clean and dirty facilities. Um, so clean meaning COVID negative, dirty meaning COVID positive. Um, and, you know, you've got to be able to load balance potentially patients um, into these different vectors um, just to, uh, again, make sure the, uh, that they're going to get the care. Imagine as your hospitals get overrun with COVID patients, how do you take care of the STEMI? How do you take care of the stroke? How do you take care of the trauma? Um, how do you take care of the PE or the AAA? Um, you know, life-threatening, life-saving life procedures need to happen and they need to happen without exposing the patient to COVID potentially, because obviously in the situation where they're having those things puts them at risk for, for COVID if they do get it and they, they don't have it at the time. So things you really need to be thinking about, expanding hospital capacity. Don't wait till this hits to set up tents to do the things that you see where, what's happening with the government here. It's weeks too late, absolutely weeks too late. The resources are so strained trying to set these things up and getting, um, you know, the resources in, you know, the infrastructure can go up, which is great, but then you need um, the people and the supplies and the equipment to be able to man these things. And, um, you know, obviously that takes time. The logistics of that are just mind boggling, especially uh, at the size of the city of New York. Um, we're doing it. We're a little behind the power curve. Um, we're not to the point where, you know, where, where we've um, where uh, demand has completely stripped out capacity. We're not there yet. We're really, really close. And um, once that happens, you know, that things will, will shift and we'll be at, at Italy or worse than Italy um, if we don't keep up with it. But we're working feverishly to, to ensure we, we can have supply to meet demand. Um, you know, the government released and everybody's kind of singing hooray uh, that they are allowing alternative destinations. But I can tell you most of our alternative destinations either don't have capacity like our urgent cares are completely packed or um, like taking people to a doctor's office or a clinic. Well, they're all shut down. Um, so there is no alternative destinations. Um, you do need to take time to celebrate your wins. Um, you know, we're, we're so busy. Like I said, I've, I've been working three weeks now uh, without a day off, uh, 14, 16 hour days. My team's doing the same thing. We can't keep this pace up. Um, and so, uh, but we do need to, to celebrate wins. Um, some other things that, um, you know, we use, I mentioned um, communicating with our staff, you've got to have a mechanism, email doesn't work, you know, paper memos is not going to work. You've got to have real time communications channels with your team using quite honestly, uh, video, uh, as well as audio and podcasts, just like this technology. We use Facebook workplace, um, the comms with our entire team. Um, probably a good portion of our teams on it. Um, and so, um, you know, we use that to, to get everything out. Um, you know, our, we do almost daily video chats with people. We have our medical director on answering questions. You know, uh, we allow very radical transparency on our organization for providers to ask questions and make criticisms and things like that. And, and people don't get in trouble for it. We want that and we encourage it because, it's the only way we and the leadership team know what's going on on the front lines. And it's also the only way uh, the leadership team can communicate with our staff. The other thing that um, you need to anticipate is your task times doubling. 
Um, you know, we've had a tremendous increase in task times, um, again, because of PPE uh, donning and doffing process obviously takes time as well as offload the laser going through the roof as hospital capacity gets full. Um, and again, you need to do everything to flatten the curve. Um, as I told everybody, this is a marathon, not a sprint. I've been uh, sprinting for the past three weeks and my personal physical and mental capacity is, you know, is really getting strained and, and stressed at this point, not sleeping, all those kinds of things. You guys need to take care of yourselves and, you know, um, I need to follow my own advice and I'm working to do that. Um, because of this, you really need to think about your, your command staff scheduling and, and how you're going to manage that to make sure people are getting time off, time on. Um, we also do daily briefings um, twice a day uh, for situational awareness. Um, and, um, you know, we, we, we have involved, you know, and we need to understand staffing, our resources, our logistics, how many leave of absences are out or workers comp based on sick patient or excuse me, sick employees, how many unit hours are we deploying and what's the weather and so on. Um, and the other interesting thing, um, you know, we just put a mandate in now um, from the Department of Health where certain patients we will no longer be transporting. Um, so, um, you know, with that, uh, you also need to be thinking about documentation and reimbursement. So um, be thinking about that, you know, as you're moving forward. A couple of things very quickly um, before we get into the main topic, just to share with you some volume statistics. Um, I'm calling this what I, the tidal wave phenomenon. Um, and uh, a lot of people are seeing this where your volumes dropped uh, by 50%. You're not going on calls because everybody's at home. Um, that's the lull before the storm. You know, when a tsunami hits, the first thing that happens is the water recedes um, and then the waves come. And you can see here uh, just on volume, the waves uh, kind of receding in the beginning and then the huge tidal waves coming in afterwards. Um, also, the, this represents the uh, AMPDS uh, acuity levels, A, B, C, D, E, and O, which are Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Omega, uh, which represent different acuities. And you can see our Delta and, um, and uh, Charlie levels uh, significantly increasing. Uh, this is respiratory calls um, that you can see are off the charts. Uh, and the more disturbing one is this, uh, the cardiac arrests. So the number of cardiac arrests we're going on right now um, are significant. Again, you can see these tidal waves uh, that are coming in. I don't know why that's happening. We definitely need to get some smart statisticians and helping us understand why this is happening. But we're seeing these waves come through, um, and we're now moving to uh, non-transport of uh, patients with CPR. We're only transporting ROSC at this point, and we're also starting to um, you know, um, uh, declare people um, in the field. So why is telemedicine important? Why are we talking about this right now? There's a couple of things. Um, you know, we're using it as this concept of a pre-canter. So you hear of decanting a wine. This is pre-canting. So um, we're trying to keep the patients out of the healthcare system, especially the minor and the moderate ones. That's, that's imperative to help stretch the capacity of your uh, healthcare system. Um, we're seeing this from the federal government, the concept of hospital without walls which means people are going to be going home to be treated. They're not going to the hospital, period. Um, and it can even be for non-COVID related. It does help save PPE. Obviously, it gives us crew safety, uh, can improve crew safety because it limits exposure for, health, for EMS and healthcare. Uh, excuse me, for healthcare. Um, there's a patient safety issue here, keeping them, uh, their exposure limited in the hospitals. 
Um, and, um, you know, this was uh, this concept of telemedicine, which is something we've always talked about and was going to be part of ET3 with an ambulance on scene. Um, but now the healthcare uh, CMS waived some of the billing requirements. So you can actually deliver uh, telemedicine remote without an ambulance. Physicians are doing this and there's some rules around it, but um, you know, it's, it's, it's the right time for this. Um, like I mentioned, this is not fully ET3 yet in the model that we've built, but we're getting close. Um, this is direct to consumer telemedicine um, through this waiver. Um, you know, we do have, um, again, the, uh, the ET3 portion of alternative destinations, um, but right now uh, I am not interpreting the waivers out so far to mean we can do treatment um, at home or treatment in place. Uh, there are others that are kind of interpreting it that way. I'm not particularly there yet until I see something uh, clarified in the regs or the rules. Um, the whole idea here is, again, to, uh, you know, create additional resources where they didn't exist before, or excuse me, capacity. So this is a re resource, uh, you know, scarcity management system. Um, the, the goal will ultimately be to treat in place at home for lower to moderate acuity, you know, and do this over the phone without having to send an ambulance. But if an ambulance does go, is also, you know, being able to leave the patient there and know that they're going to have some form of care available to them. We talked about the pre-canting already and hospital without walls. Um, and this is something you have to really think about. You have to think four to five days ahead and you have to play chess with this. Um, and, um, you know, you get a lot of us get stuck in the now and you have to be looking forward uh, uh, strategically to understand uh, what's coming and what's going to happen. And so, you know, as the acuity shifts and the ICUs fill up, and basically as the ICUs expand, that takes bed space away from med surge and, and telemetry floors and things like that. And so you, um, you know, you've got to do the load balancing for this, but also keep people from going to the hospital, which is that load balancing and, um, and pre-canting. Um, normal emergency patients, like I said, you know, you've got to have a mechanism for them. Uh, some places are doing clean versus dirty, for example, um, as of right now, uh, politically, we'll see what happens, but the Comfort is a clean facility. Uh, Javits was also going to be a clean facility, um, but now they're flipping it to a dirty facility. Um, and the inclusion criteria associated with the clean facility, for some reason, it was, wasn't fully appreciated or foreseen that um, the number of lower acuity, non-COVID positive uh, patients uh, is almost non-existent. In fact, I think this morning... Um, the comfort only had a handful of patients uh, in it. And uh, there's a lot of criticism in the media because of that. So think about that. I'm sure you've seen this. We want to flatten the curve. That's what we're trying to do. Um, and the way I talk about it is we're building a capacity bridge, right? So we're, our job in the EMS system is not just to transport, transport, transport. We've got to stop doing that so that we have capacity for the super critical patients that need the ICU level care or just about ICU level care. Um, and the way we do that is through stop taking patients and again, also load balancing and, and then adding capacity. So, you know, we're buying time, we're building this bridge, capacity bridge to buy ourselves time until we can get increased capacity in the hospitals. So there's lots of different ways to do this um, in terms of telemedicine um, as one of our tools. Uh, the concept of direct-to-consumer 
Um, and that's where the patient initiates. You may see this uh, in some of the tools that are out there where a patient can go and download an app on their phone and they click a button and they go into a virtual waiting room, fill out a form, maybe put a credit card in. And within a few minutes, they're talking to a doctor uh, or within a scheduled time, they're talking to a doctor. That's a direct-to-consumer model. That's not what we're talking about here for, for us. And then there's an invitation-in model where the provider initiates the, the, the visit, and that's the model we're uh, using currently. Uh, when someone calls into us um, you know, on 911 call, um, we go through a, a, a schedule or a um, a navigation system I'll show you, and then um, based on the um, navigation outputs, um, they can have a telemedicine visit. Um, you can have scheduled visits. Obviously, that means you're scheduling them in advance, and then you can have on-demand visits. And then on the on-demand visits, again, without EMS on scene, that's actually what we're doing right now. We've not instituted telemedicine on scene other than our community paramedic program, but we'll be likely shifting gears with that in the coming weeks where we'll also be doing telemedicine um, with our ambulances in the field um, so um, as to uh, keep patients out of the system. The other thing that we're seeing, um, and I know Austin is doing a lot of amazing things and want to give them a shout out and, and credit uh, in what they're doing um, with uh, keeping patients you know, out of the hospital. They're doing a lot of similar things, uh, slightly different approach, but one of the things they're doing is using telemedicine t uh, systems and video systems to do a pre-entry assessment. That way you can decide does only one provider need to go in versus two, safe PPE, lower risk exposure to viral loads, those kinds of things. And then, um, you know, there's also video versus telephony routes um, that you have to consider. So a lot of people are like, well, how do you set these workflows up? Um, the way we designed it, and I know, uh, I think Austin designed slightly differently than we did, um, you know, they're using, I believe, online medical control um, to do this. We're actually uh, did this very differently. We created a virtual physician practice. So our EMS agency is actually its own practice at this point with its own physicians, its own billing system, its own EHR system, and its own registration system. Um, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in a minute. But um, the way I, we thought about it is think about how a patient flows through a doctor's office or an emergency department, right? And when you uh, obviously need medical services, the first thing you do is you call up the doctor or you walk in. Um, there's a registration process that happens where they get your past medical history and your meds and your allergies. And there's a clinical screening as well as insurance and co-pays. And you also have to you know, sign consent forms and all of that uh, and so on. And all of that actually is required in order to bill for telemedicine services. Uh, and obviously you want to do some of this for patient safety and clinical safety as well to know patient's history. If, if they're not familiar to you, you don't have medical information on them. Then the patient is roomed. There's a medical screening by, you know, um, usually uh, a medical assistant who gets your blood pressure and, and pulse and temperature and things like that. Um, then the, the QHP visits, so the nurse, the doctor, uh, excuse me, the NP, the doctor, the PA. When you're done your appointment, you check out, and there's kind of a disposition made. Um, you know, the QHP will then document the visit uh, in their system, and then obviously uh, the organization then codes the claim and then bills it out. And like I mentioned, so we replicated everything you just saw there, but we do it all virtually through our own software systems and through a mix of, um, you know, off-the-shelf systems like AMPDS and ECNS, and then we built our own custom flows. 
and then we're using our health systems registration billing and uh, EHR systems to, to document on the provider side of this. So what do you need to implement? Um, well, you need a call triage and navigation system in your 911 center. That's the first thing. So you have to be able to risk stratify your patients uh, in terms of levels of acuity. So that way you can pick and choose which patients go to which uh, you know, levels of care or which vectors of care. Um, and um, so you need call triage as well as navigation systems. And we're very, uh, most of you are probably familiar with Dr. Clauston and the International Academy of Emergency Dispatch. We're accredited in both uh, AMPDS and ECNS in our center. Um, we just never used our ECNS system in the 911 setting. We use it in a very different flow. We'll get into that in a second. Um, then you have to actually have patients to navigate to. This was why in the early days of ECNS or the emergency communications nurse system and nurse call triage, uh, the triage system was great, but they didn't have any place to send people. So you have to really think about all these different levels. And, and you can see here we're using uh, very uh, different risk stratified levels of provider services um, to be able to navigate patients to from a low acuity setting to a high acuity setting. Um, then you need uh, that registration and billing process. You obviously need a platform uh, for video to be able to deliver this on. And then there's actually some other tools um, for if you are doing in-home telemedicine treat and release. Uh, like I said, we're getting ready to do this that I'll share in, in just a second. So what's nurse call triage? So nurse call triage is a structured system used um, to support patients seeking care. And it consists of three components. There's a triage component, uh, really, which is usually the front end 911 component. So for example, in the AMPDS system, uh, that's what's known as the Omega protocol set, which is not the standard set of EMD cards. It's an advanced set of EMD cards. You cannot use that set unless you're accredited as my understanding. And you also cannot um, leverage ECNS unless you're an accredited center of excellence with the, the EMD side of things. Um, so we have that triage system. The next thing this does is it also triages after the initial triage, and then it helps to navigate patients really into what's known as uh, the locus of care and a locus uh, and a recommended care level. And basically think of a magic quadrant, you know, uh, four boxes and uh, the vertical axis is um, time to care, long, short or long, and then the horizontal axis is um, can the care be remote or does it need to be face-to-face? -face? And then you combine those together into a magic quadrant, and based on where the patient lands, based on the, the triage system, uh, lands into that magic uh, that quadrant, and then you use that to navigate the patient to the appropriate type of care. And then there is medical advice included in this, just like post-dispatch instructions, for example, um, for patients that fall into self-care. Um, there are, you know, 911 system, uh, EMD integrated and non-integrated systems. And again, this is, this is something that uh, actually CMS fully appreciates and understands and is going to eventually fund uh, as part of the NOFO grant portion of ET3. So I mentioned earlier, you know, um, this analogy that I wanted to talk about. And I, the analogy I use is a sand filter. Um, and if you're not familiar with a sand filter, basically it has various um, uh, levels of granularity in terms of the media that um, water goes through in order to filter out impurities. Well, the same concept um, is for what we're doing here. And so this is a little busy for you to understand uh, or to look at and, and kind of take in all at once, but let's quickly walk through it. 
So um, as you can see on top, the red and blue boxes represent a 911 pathway, and then the green and blue boxes represent a care management population management pathway. I cut a lot of the stuff out on that because uh, we're here to talk about 911, but actually the lower green blue is what we've been doing since 2013 and, and the model. Um, we don't have people calling 911. We have them calling an alternative number. So you can see here, people call 911. There's a, your, your AMPDS triage system. Um, you either send your normal EMS response or you go into an ECNS triage modality. And then from there, you kind of restratify the patient into these various uh, levels, nurse advice, uh, care navigate, telemedicine, uh, CP response, uh, EMS response, and so on. And then you can tack telemedicine on to some of these, um, you know, once you get on scene as well. So there's telemedicine before you get on scene and telemedicine uh, after you get on scene. And that's a brand new component only allowed because of the waiver. So most people haven't talked about this. It's something that we foresaw um, coming at some point, um, but there's a lot of politics around it. There's a lot of dollars potentially downstream that aren't going to be spent and avoided because of it. And so you can imagine just the, the lobbies and, and uh, their concern over some of this. But in this situation right now, it, it's absolutely needed. Um, so again, kind of comparing, you know, that sand filter, right? The whole idea here is acuity. The top level of, uh, of the algorithm here, the, the top uh, side of the boxes of the red-blue is kind of your finer grands of sand, uh, of, of sand. And then as you go down, you can see that the risk actually goes up or the, the, the clinical response system goes up uh, to match the level of acuity. And so it's a similar kind of concept. You're trying to take patients through the sand filter to decide what's, where do they get stopped at in order to get flushed you know, out to the drinking water side. Um, you know, to make sure that uh, they're getting the appropriate care that they need. So um, the other thing that you really need um, to uh, manage this, and, and honestly, these systems don't exist right now from what I can tell, and so we had to build our own version of this, um, is a queuing system. And you need a, like a virtual waiting room is the best way to think of it, to be able to queue patients waiting to talk to a doctor in a telemedicine platform um, and especially as you have multiple patients coming in, uh, you know, size organization we are, it's not onesie, twosies, it's, it's many at, at, uh, simultaneously. So you have to be able to route patients into a, almost like a virtual waiting room and then into a virtual visit room. And so here's an example of a piece of software that, that does that designed for physicians, but we need something like this designed for EMS. And so we had to build our own. Um, which we which we've done a rudimentary version of it, but uh, it's working and um, it's something you have to think about is how do you navigate patients? You know, when you've got many many patients uh, queuing, and uh, how do you prioritize their needs? Who has who? You know, do you need a prioritized stack because you have somebody that's maybe a higher level of acuity than lower level of acuity? And so we've designed, um, you know, um, telemedicine high, telemedicine low risk stratification so that we can. Uh, prioritize the queue if, if necessary when we have multiple callers waiting. Um, so it's almost like the best way to describe it for those of you in the communication center, it's like an ACD, an automatic call distribution system, but for multi-media uh, multi channels. Um, so text, you know, thinking of text and audio, video, uh, things like that. Obviously, the last piece uh, of this, uh, some people are doing this uh, for free, uh, which is great right now. And I, I guess there's probably a lot of finger crossing that EMS is going to be able to uh, access the funding 
but I can tell you right now, uh, the trickle-down funding, especially because they're talking about distribution to the states, um, I'm, I'm, I don't think a lot of us are super confident um, that unless we have a specific earmark for EMS that uh, we're going to have the ability to access funds because in terms of the uh, you know the pyramid of who has the most power and, and who has the most influence, obviously, healthcare is way ahead of EMS. So I, I know a lot of people are definitely concerned about that and We'll get into that in a second, um, but you have to. So you have to have an RCM system, or what's known as a revenue cycle management system, uh, and and all of these components that you see here, we are doing um, as part of these visits. So again, we we literally have built a, a virtual uh, physician practice. I, I believe it's the first one in our health system, uh, where and maybe it's the first one in the United States. I know there's a few others doing this, but we're the I believe we're one of the first virtual. Uh, what I mean, the first EMS systems that have turned itself into not just a Part B supplier, but also a Part A provider. So um, the platforms you need to use and do this, there's lots of different ones. Um, before the waiver, you had to use HIPAA compliant um, tools. And so, uh, for example, Amwell is the is the one we currently use because it's it's used for a larger healthcare mission versus an EMS mission. It's definitely not designed for EMS. It's designed for healthcare, um, but it's a HIPAA compliant uh, system. Uh, we've seen um, two, uh, I think, pretty well known industry, uh, you know, um, providers or vendors. Uh, I, I I consider them partners and actually close friends. I'm, I know these guys very well at many levels. Um, through um, general devices as well as Pulsera, um, and they have the ability to do this invite-in model uh, where you can send the patient a link um, as well as whoever is going to be on the other end of link to be able to, to chat um, and communicate uh, together. And uh, some of the things they're doing, um, both, both organizations, just absolutely amazing in terms of stepping up to the plate to help EMS out. And um, I, I, my hat's off to them and say thank you to, to them. Um, the other thing um, the waiver does allow currently short term um, is the use of other types of video uh, media. So you can use Zoom, you can use WebEx, you can use Skype, you can use FaceTime uh, to do these things. But again, they're going to kind of be one on one. They're not going to collect data for you. They're not going to have some of the queuing systems we talk about. They're not designed for EMS, but they do work in a pinch. So um, um, and that's waived right now by the by the government, and I imagine that uh, will not get unwaived. So one of the things we're doing uh, in preparation for the the ET three treat in place, and this was something we were working with Zolon for actually a couple of years now on the development side, um, is um, in, in again in anticipating ET three and treat in place. But now I think um, I'm hopeful and optimistic that ET three uh, reimbursement type model. Uh, will be available to us at some point here. I, many of us are working hard behind the scenes to make that happen at the, the federal government level. Um, but this really cool tool, so it's called the uh, mobile streaming. We actually just uh, were one of the first in the U.S. to get it. It just got FDA cleared not too long ago. Um, and uh, we've been working very closely with Zoll to uh, get this launched as we speak and get it rolled out to all of our monitors. But essentially what this system does um, is it takes the screen of your monitor and the capabilities of your uh, monitor. This is in this case, it's, I believe it's a Zolex series, um, and allows you to view it over the internet live. 
Um, so here we only have one of our devices. Uh, this was our very first test device that we installed the day, uh, about a day and a half ago. Um, and um, we'll actually have about 100 devices listed here within the next week uh, as we update the firmware and, and load in the programming necessary to do this. Um, and you can see you can get different reports. You can see 12 leads if they're taken and pull them down um, from the monitor um, and, um, and also see them just as part of, of, as you would see in RescueNet. But the cool part about this is it's actually live. So this is um, over the internet you can view the screen of your uh, X-Series monitor and we'll be using that, um, you know, when we're doing our um, care in the home, uh, likely and in some form of treat and release or potentially doing follow-up with the patients that are discharged. Um, there's there's a, a desire from our health system, again, with this hospital at walls or hospital at home model uh, to be able to kind of use EMS in, in that case uh, as we can with, you know, with capacity right now, the 911 system strained. So, um, the question is, you know, if that volume goes, we can shift gears and, and use our medics to do some of this. But um, my hat's off to Zoll and, and, and thank you to them. I know we've worked, um, you guys have worked pretty hard to put this together and, and I'm very uh, optimistic about uh, its use and helping us to, to really get a good assessment on people and, and, you know, be able to go again from risk avoidance to risk tolerance practice medicine in the marketplace. So I'm going to um, end here before we take questions, uh, asking for a call of action for every single person on this um, chat. And, um, you know, I've been, I've been saying this on a couple of different webinars now that I've been on uh, for the past couple of weeks. Um, and that is we need the government to launch ET3 immediately, all facets of ET3 and to every EMS agency and make that billing system available it's no longer a demonstration project. We need this now. Um, we need, um, you know, so that we can do treat in place. We do have a portion of ET3. They gave us alternative destinations. But again, for us, um, there is no alternative destination. So the impact of that, unfortunately, is not, I think, what they are anticipating. Um, we need to allow payments for the concept of here and treat, um, which is basically the telemedicine portion waiver but using the telephone versus video. Um, one of the things we have found is especially, uh, believe it or not, even in New York City, the ability to do video um, is very difficult um, sometimes. And we're only able to establish a video link about 50% of the time due to connectivity issues, not because of the, the technology. Um, so we want parity for uh, the same visit as whether there's a video or not with the doctor. And think about this, we've been doing this since 1960. Um, you know, with the, the MyCore radios and the telemetry and, and over the radio for medical control uh, or over the phone. So why all of a sudden is video this magic pill that changes the world? Um, it doesn't. We have a research project coming out in a, um, a high-impact journal we're under review on that clearly shows there is no clinical difference between using video and not using video. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're, we're strongly con continuing to advocate um, to, to change the rules around that. Uh, we also need the feds to issue uh, grant money now so that you can go and take what we just talked about and implement it. Um, and then obviously we need sustainability funding once it's up and running, and that's for nurse called triage. Uh, provider-based telehealth and provider-based telemedicine in the 911 center without the ambulance requirement. We do have that now with the waiver. Uh, but I think we need it implemented and just the, the, the amount of regulations uh, and the onerous um, documentation standards for physicians and telemedicine. We think medical necessity for ambulance trips is tough. 
way do you look at this? Uh, it's crazy. So we, you know, hopefully they're going to lean that out a little bit and, and take some of the requirements off so that we can, we can do this uh, and expand using the telemedicine capabilities. This is another one I've been advocating for since day one. We've been to go the office of CMMI to, as well as the White House, to lobby for many of these things in the past um, as ET3 was coming out, and we got to continue to push, which is we need to remove the 911 requirement for reimbursement on these things uh, so that emergency medical communication centers that don't necessarily get 911 calls directly but still have emergency calls coming in um, can qualify for reimbursement on these on these types of situations. And then obviously the, the last one, and I think we all know this, is we need permanent, permanent funding to keep us sustainable uh, as well as make us an essential service. We're all being called essential, you know, uh, staff now. So we haven't in the past, but magically we are now. And obviously it's a very important for us. So we need to take this uh, while it's, while it's a disaster, we, you know, don't let a crisis go unleveraged. And I know there's many of us working to try to get the federal government as well as our state governments to recognize that EMS is an essential service. We need pay parity with law and fire. Um, and, and we need money to buy the equipment and, and uh, the things that we need to do our job. So I'm going to close there and I'm going to go ahead and uh, open it up to questions. And thank you all for your time. And thank you so much, Jonathan. We are now going to open up the discussion to our attendees. Again, if you have a question for Jonathan, please type it into your question submission box. We're going to try to get through as many as we can today. Uh, John, before we start into the questions, I know you wanted to offer our listeners some uh, materials via email that you've made available, and uh, people can request that through uh, text. Would you mind giving out the phone number that people can uh, text to request those materials? Yeah, thanks. Um, so uh, we put together um, a kind of a shared document with a bunch of links, including uh, to a Dropbox where we have this presentation as well as all of our workflows um, and a variety of resources for people to be able to take a look at um, and share um, as you're preparing your response plans for COVID uh, or if you're, you're trying to prop something like this up for COVID. Um, if you text me your email address, um, this is a burner number I created specifically for this process. Um, so um, it won't be available probably in a couple of days, but the number is 516-329-9330. Again, that's 516-329. 9330 and when you send your email address to that link, uh, to that um, phone number you will get uh, a response back an automated response uh, with a link to that document which will then allow you to hyperlink to all of the various resources also please pay attention to that because we um, will be adding um, you know additional resources as people share stuff uh, trying to create kind of a wiki opportunity uh, for people to share information and, and get information out uh, to, the, to the masses. So thank you. Um, the other thing too, real quick, uh, just so everyone knows, um, this, is, uh, this, this session was recorded, uh, this is a live session now, but the, the session was recorded on Friday. So things are rapidly changing even since Friday in terms of uh, what's happening. Um, so just a, a quick uh, couple of updates from what I said on Friday. Um, Actually, I made an error. I said uh, 
you know, the uh, quarantine time was 14 weeks. It's not weeks. I meant to say days. So I wanted to correct that uh, originally. Uh, that was the quarantine. And then also now there's an update. Uh, the Comfort and the Javits centers uh, are now COVID positive uh, at the pressure and, and doing of uh, um, some of our health systems uh, just because uh, we were at a came to a breaking point um, yesterday. So um, at, as of right now, both both of those places are taking patients that are COVID positive. So thank you for allowing me to, to clarify that. All right, great. And we do have uh, Jonathan with us uh, right now to go through uh, some of the questions that are coming in. And there's a lot coming in. We're going to dive right in. Um, Jonathan, we've had several coming in related to the topic of uh, reimbursement. First one we have here, can you explain some of the basic details of what CMS will and won't pay for in terms of telemedicine, including how things have changed? Yeah, happy to. So telemedicine can only be performed and reimbursed by a what's called a QHP or a qualifying uh, healthcare professional. Uh, this is someone with an NPI number. So this includes physicians, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, uh, and licensed clinical social workers. Um, so that's the first thing. Paramedics cannot do this, um, and you cannot bill for paramedics doing the telemedicine portion of this. So what's been waived, um, so th there's a bunch of rather significant in the past regulations uh, prior to the waiver um, where uh, there was only certain conditions of which a telemedicine could be performed and the reimbursement was extremely low on this. Uh, there were issues associated with where the patient was located. There were issues associated where the physician was located. Uh, very strict requirements around the video visit uh, and also, um, you know, the ruralness of a patient um, and, and um, versus urban density. So there's a lot of things that were in the regulations prior to COVID that prevented us from doing exactly what we're doing now, uh, which is to be able to provide a telemedicine visit. Uh, and there are components associated with that we can get into uh, that you have to be able to document in order to build these. Um, but again, it does have to be a physician or uh, another uh, provider with an NPI to build these services. So that's the difference. And the waiver basically took away a lot of those constraints associated with the patient location. So, so for example, the patient's home is now a location um, where in the past it, it was only under very uh, strict criteria, uh, as well as telephone visit uh, billing has also been opened up with what they call telehealth. So the tele telemedicine is with video, telehealth is via phone. Um, there, there's different rates associated with services provided there, and there's also uh, different things associated with this, if this is a new patient versus an existing patient. There's a lot of things that go around it, but essentially we're doing physician practice billing, um, but as part of our EMS agency. So that's uh, hopefully that clarifies some things. You mentioned rural, uh, rural areas. We have Brandy listening in uh, from Arkansas. She has a question for you. We have started telemedicine through a local hospital here in our area in rural Arkansas. We are looking at how to build these services. We are taking iPads into the residence and going through the assessment with a nurse online assessing the patient. What are the options for billing for this? Currently, we are doing it as a treat no transport. Yeah, so uh, a couple of things. So first off, uh, a nurse is not a qualifying uh, QHP. So a nurse cannot perform telemedicine, at least under the federal program, uh, and get reimbursed for it. Uh, the requirements of ET3 
which have not been waived for treatment in place and which have not been implemented would be that you have an ambulance on scene, then it has to be a state certified ambulance with, with a pro two providers on scene, um, and you have to have a either a, um, or excuse me, two clinicians on scene, I don't wanna say providers, clinicians meaning an EMT or paramedic on scene, or you can have a provider on the ambulance. So for, for example, a physician, a nurse practitioner and so on, on scene, or you can have the provider remote and the ambulance and the, and the EMT and paramedic on scene. So what most people are doing is telemedicine or who uh, receive the ET3 program would be able to perform um, treat in place via telemedicine. So that would be a doctor, nurse practitioner, PA, or licensed clinical social worker on one end of the video and then the ambulance team and the patient on the other end of the video. That's what's called treat in place. That has not as of, as of uh, I'm aware currently, been uh, waived or that has not been implemented by CMS or CMMI. What has been implemented is the other tenant of ET3, which is alternative destinations. Um, so if you transport a patient to a place other than a hospital, including coming out of the hospital, going home, which I know from a medical necessity standpoint, oftentimes patients didn't meet that, those have all been waived at this time and you can bill for taking patients to those alternative destinations. There has been some interpretation, which I don't agree with, and I believe others have weighed in on this now, um, that uh, Medicare specifically in that waiver said taking you could take a patient home uh, and bill for those services. That is not meant to be treatment in place. Uh, the intent, as I understand it behind that, is uh, the federal government based on the volume and if you can't flatten the curve, uh, will want patients out of the hospital and being treated at home or convalescing at home versus in the hospital. So this is a mechanism to reimburse EMS to take someone who would not have met medical necessity in the past from a hospital back home in order to receive what they're calling hospital without walls care or hospital at home type care. How about... Uh retrospective payments. If billing procedures change and there is retrospective payment available for EMS agencies, what are the most important things to document and keep track of so that we can ensure we will get reimbursed? So great question um, and smart thinking. Um, so uh, we are making an assumption ourselves that there potentially could be retrospective enablement of treatment in place for you know, in-home EMS-assisted telemedicine, um, or um, some other things that maybe we're not even thinking about. Um, telemedicine was backdated, I believe, when the uh, waiver came in. So if we see other things, and I believe also the alternative destinations were back, backdated. So, um, you know, on the provider side, um, you're going to need to do a lot deeper dive uh, in terms of uh, what we can talk about here, but there are many things associated with a provider visit that have to be documented um, you know, including where was the physician, where was the patient, um, did, was their consent obtained, uh, what's, the, what's the h and um, you know, um, the complete head-to-toe assessment. Um, you know, there's many different aspects uh, to uh, provider level, physician level documentation uh, in order to bill for those provider level services. On the ambulance side, I would absolutely, like, for example, we just got uh, uh, a new um, policy implemented by the Department of Health here in the state of New York uh, for to not transport patients basically if they meet certain criteria, but yet there's no pay for, there's no telemedicine associated with that. So for example, on our 
treat and release. Um, actually, on our treat and releases, we didn't even have them coming into our billing system in the past. So we quickly uh, pivoted and, and, you know, we're bringing those in now and we're categorizing them um, as treat and release, you know, mandatory treat and released, uh, you know, under this uh, state program, treat and released, you know, by choice. Or if we do a telemedicine visit, which we're potentially going to turn on just because it's the right thing to do for our patients uh, and the right thing to do really for the healthcare system and, and, and decanting this capacity, um, you know, we, we will likely start doing treat-in-place telemedicine visits even without the, the, the waiver from uh, CMS. Um, and we'll be documenting, again, those uh, accordingly. So I would definitely in your, uh, however you guys, whatever EPCR system you're using, we do it through uh, creating a treatment that we can list, um, you know, so that it can show um, that, you know, this is the type of event that was occurred. Plus, we also have the ability to add in um, flex fields or fields that we can, you know, um, that are outside of the NEMSIS standard uh, for data collection. So either way, uh, definitely want to um, pay attention to these claims, um, not just throw them away. Um, and, um, you know, even under the disaster declaration funding mechanisms, there could be reimbursement opportunities if, if CMS doesn't pay directly. Stephen has a question about um, working with a reluctant medical director. What advice would you give to a medical director who might be hesitant to implement this program? So, um, you know, I, I guess I'm very lucky in this regard. Um, you know, we're part of the, we are the largest health system in the state of New York. We are the major uh, health system for the city of New York. Um, and uh, we are a heavily integrated EMS agency with uh, our uh, healthcare system, as well as we're integrated with the fire department in New York's 911 system. So, um, you know, um, we, we've been very fortunate. It's actually been our medical leadership that has led the charge on this um, and uh, have been very supportive. Um, I, I would ask the reluctant medical directors to really understand uh, the disaster uh, situation and the, the, the steps of uh, this very slow-moving tsunami that's coming your way if flattening the curve doesn't happen. Um, and you know, you've got to really believe what you're seeing on the news, and it's it's likely um, in, in many things. I'm sure the news isn't giving the full story, uh, but the bottom line is this is not like anything we've ever seen uh, before, in, at least in modern times, in terms of the overwhelming uh, tsunami of patients, highly critical patients, as you saw in the the data that I showed in the first couple of slides, um, that are coming in very very sick. Um, you know, with SATs in the 80s, low 90s, uh, and that are getting intubated very quickly, um, you know, and then staying on ventilators and, and expiring or staying on ventilators and hopefully recovering. Um, so um, you really need to understand what's coming your way and, and not be in denial. Um, and so, uh, you know, in order to really do a good job for our patients, um, it's going to take every system that we can design um, if this tsunami is truly going to hit your community um, in terms of pre-canting, then good load balancing within the hospitals and making sure that you're not inundating one hospital and not the other, the ability to load balance patients in between facilities, the ability to decompress these facilities, whether that's to home, whether that's to these makeshift hospitals with tents. Um, you know, we're doing this a little behind the power curve uh, you still have an opportunity. You, the, the, you know, when, as I mentioned, when the tsunami happens, the water recedes. Many of you are still in the water receding, uh, you know, phase of this. 
uh, and let's pray that that's where you stay. And that's the challenge with this, right, is how much do I prepare? What if I over-prepare? Um, I, I can only tell you that you need to be prepared, um, and um, especially if your community is not listening to the advice. Like there's many New Yorkers here that are still going out, still having parties, still going to the fields and, and doing group sports. I mean, it, it's, it's absolutely insane in the middle of a pandemic, and it's quite honestly um, – you know, selfish um, and extremely uh, uh, erratic and inappropriate behavior because you're putting the, the lives of our medical providers at risk uh, because of the spreading this, this virus. So, um, you know, I, I would just say the medical directors have to take this seriously. Pick up the phone. Maybe you have a colleague in another state that's being impacted. Talk to them. Hear what uh, um, the, hear the things you need to hear that will hopefully open your eyes to, to, to want to take action. You mentioned a communication app uh, in your talk. Charles wants to know what was the Facebook app used for communication? Yeah, great question. So um, Facebook Workplace, if you Google it, Facebook Workplace. Um, so the best way to describe Facebook Workplace uh, is it is a full functioning version of Facebook, except it's, it's controlled. So it's just for your employees. Um, and you can completely control and moderate the entire Facebook experience. And it has live television broadcasts, live audio broadcast capabilities, as well as, you know, the normal things you would see um, in, a, in a Facebook post or feed. Um, you can create channels, um, you know, and you can have private channels, you can have open channels, you can moderate. Um, so it's been a tremendous win uh, in our ability to communicate. We, you know, we're using it to post all of the latest uh, guidance because uh, it's, it's literally changing every day in terms of PPE or in terms of who we're transporting. Um, you know, what are we doing with cardiac arrests uh, today um, and what's changed and so on because it's a rapidly, uh, you know, it's a rapid feed of information that can overwhelm you, especially if you don't have a really good uh, channel system to be able to communicate effectively out to your providers. How about the topic of uh, community paramedicine? Austin has a question. Has the use of your community paramedics increased with the progression of COVID-19 and what specifically are they doing? Well, I would, uh, if they're from the Austin Travis County system, I understand they're doing some amazing things there as well. So kudos and shout out again to those guys. Um, our community paramedic program was for a uh, high utilizer population, patient population um, under a CMMI demonstration project called Independence at Home, which is basically providing uh, as much care as possible in the home. And our volume has gone through the roof in that program, but also, unfortunately, this program has the most uh, susceptible patients to COVID-19, uh, multiple comorbidities, multiple um, uh, you know, medical problems wrong, multiple ADL dependencies uh, with these patients. They're typically in their last five to seven years of life, but not all on um, hospice. So um, it's, it's impacted us, as you can imagine. I won't go into the details on the on the on some of this, but um, it, it's been very, very difficult population um, with a lot of with a lot of tragedy to it. Let's just put it that way. You mentioned ET three. Um... A listener wants a little bit more information on that. Can you explain what you mean when you say ET3 should be implemented right away? What is the most up-to-date news about CMS reimbursing for treatment in place? Yeah, so um, at least um, 
prior to the start of this webinar, and maybe this will help change things, and that's why I asked for the call to action for everyone on the phone, um, we need the tenants of ET3 implemented right away. We probably don't need ET3. So ET3 is a structure and a program that has a tremendous amount of regulatory burden associated with it in order to participate. But the tenants of ET3, what ET3 provides, alternative destinations and treat in place via telemedicine, those are the things that we need now. Obviously, alternative destinations are up and running. That's great. So 50%, we need the other 50%. We need treat in place reimbursable um, so that, um, you know, we could technically reimburse now um, if we would send an ambulance into the home with telemedicine, but it would only be for the provider visit uh, and not the ambulance, um, you know, payment. So in ET3 for a treat in place, if you're doing it via remote telemedicine, uh, the ambulance provider gets to bill a base rate uh, of either ALS1 or BLS1 emergency based on, um, you know, uh, how the call was dispatched. Um, so, um, you know, that's what we're missing right now. So we can respond to all of these and, and we should be responding to these and not transporting appropriately and safely as best as we can. But um, we also need to get paid for it because obviously there's a tremendous economic impact to all of this uh, for many ambulance companies around the country who do not receive government subsidies um, and rely 100% on, you know, uh, reimbursement. Uh, as I understand, you know, call volumes in communities that have not seen this wave have dropped 50%. Um, many ambulance companies only, you know, sit on 30, 60 days of cash. So clearly there are many ambulance services, for-profit, not-for-profit, rurals, uh, that I, I'm, I'm deeply nervous about that are, are going to go under uh, as part of this. So, um, you know, this needs to be implemented now. We need to reach out to CMS. You need to reach out to your senators. You need to reach out to your congressmen, both at the state level and the federal level, uh, and just inundate them with this request. They will listen. Um, you know, we sent a letter to CMS um, and CMMI requesting all of this, and uh, I know many others, NAEMT is working on this, uh, AAA I think is working on this, um, you know, the, but, but we have to get our voices heard. Um, you know, we, we attempted to get earmarks in the, in the round three of the COVID funding um, specific to EMS, and we had, I believe, 15,000 people under the NAEMT campaign write letters to senators and congressmen, which is an all-time record for NAEMT and likely for the private side of the EMS industry. So, we need to do 30,000, 50,000, you know, as part of this, because that payment um, can help, you know, EMS agencies survive this, uh, this, this, you know, this pandemic and, and the economic tsunami that's yet to come 90, 120 days from now, once, uh, you know, your cash flow catches up and your billing catches up and, and all of a sudden your, your revenue drops down and you see the impacts of your volume loss. For a little bit more clarity into billing under an NPI, um, I, I'm still a bit confused about how you are billing for telehealth services as an EMS services as an EMS service. Are you billing under the QHP's NPI? I believe you said that you made your EMS agency into a provider so that they could be reimbursed for telehealth as a physician would. How specifically uh, did you do that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, first off, our EMS agency is not a provider. We turned um, uh, we turned our EMS agency into a virtual physician practice, uh, so that we could have providers with NPI numbers provide services and then bill for those services. So 
Um, the best way to describe it is, let's say you're a physician just graduating medical school and you want to start your own practice. Uh, there are many things you have to do in order to do that. Uh, you, have to, you have to rent an office, you have to get staff, you have to get a billing system, you have to make sure you're registered with the insurance companies, all those kinds of things. Basically, that's what we did. But instead of having a brick and mortar practice, um, you know, we have a virtual practice. So, um, and our EMS agency is the umbrella or the house under which that virtual pra practice exists. The physicians we're using are part of our organization from the emergency medical service line. So these are ER docs uh, that uh, we are working with directly. Um, and the billing systems were set up using the same exact billing systems and registration systems and EHR systems that are used in our physician practices throughout Long Island and New York City. So we basically just, you know, did it as if we were opening up a, another physician practice, which is done multiple times, you know, in our organization, probably per month. Um, we were able to, to to launch that, but for this virtual concept, um, which again gives us the, the billing systems, the back end systems to be able to register the patient, um, do the EHR and the documentation, and do the coding and billing aspects. Um, you know, full revenue cycle management, but on the Part A provider uh, under Part A provider rules. Uh, and, and on that subject, how, how many physicians are in that virtual EMS physician group and how many full-time uh, employees of coverage? So right now we have about 20 physicians participating, but we have access to the entire emergency medicine service line, which is hundreds of uh, emergency room physicians across our network. Um, we're, um, right now we uh, have one uh, physician full-time uh, um, 24 seven and we're adding a, a second and third for peak times uh, as we start to scale and ramp. Uh, we're also trying to do this on a more of a cost per call or cost per click model at some point in, in our future. Uh, we're hoping to do that almost like a gig uh, economy type opportunity. Uh, think Uber or, or Lyft or um, you know shipped or Instacart kind of opportunities but for uh, providers um, you know where they can sit at home, turn on their phone, and be able to provide uh, virtual, um, you know, visits uh, on a, in an on-demand system. That's, I think, the longer-term uh, vision of this. Uh, right now, it's everybody has to work brick and mortar, um, but we're very close to be able to doing it remote. Actually, we've done a couple of telemedicine visits remote with our medical director, um, and they've worked out great. And, and he's actually sent a mobile lab in to get patients tested. He's been able to e-script uh, or e-prescribe patients, um, and these, obviously these are patients with existing relationships. But um, you know, all of those patients called 911, so um, and we're able to get those services directly through the redirect system that we talked about in the navigation systems we talked about. Stephen's listening in. He has a question about Mtala. We are an emergency medicine practice trying to navigate the at-home telemedicine visits. I have some questions regarding Mtala. Is it required to have a full set of vital signs to meet this requirement? And also, have you found an ability to have uh, perhaps an EMS member stop by the home to perform vitals during the visit? So yes, on the vital signs, um, we actually did that for the first time yesterday for, again, a treat in place kind of opportunity. Um, because it was interesting. So the gentleman, uh, this particular patient, called uh, a, a online, um, you know, consumer, direct-to-consumer telemedicine, um, you know, service. I won't say which one. They told him he needed to have vital signs taken. They weren't comfortable, so they told him to call 911. 
So they called 911 um, and we de-escalated to telemedicine that this patient sent a, an ambulance and did vital signs and, and cleared the patient. So um, you absolutely can use, you know, that, that's basically what we do in community paramedicine, our community paramedicine right now program uh, that we've been doing since 2013. Um, in terms of Amtala, you know, the um, one of the things that uh, we, as part of ET3, is we went under an extremely deep dive under uh, the Amtala, um, you know, side of this uh, in terms of understanding, you know, did this meet Amtala or not? And uh, the, the legal interpretation was at least under the ET3 model of treat in place, Amtala was uh, not applying. Uh, and again, remember, we're not denying anybody care here. So this is this patient's getting. Uh, receiving care from, uh, you know, an emergency room physician on demand, or um, if they agree to and they're clinically deemed appropriate, you know, they can be navigated after an assessment um, to the appropriate level of care. So I would definitely, I'm not the EMTALA expert, but I would say talk to your legal counsel and get their interpretation, but that was our interpretation of it. Couple questions coming in related to the specifics of a telehealth con uh, consult. Can you describe a typical telehealth consult? Is there a common call type? What are patients asking about? How are you referring them, et cetera? Absolutely. So the typical workflow um, that we're doing is uh, we receive a 911 call. We put them through Clausen card 36, which is the pandemic triage protocol. Um, based on um, where they triage out, um, we're basically sending omegas and alphas, not just from 36, but also from um, 1 through 32. And we worked very closely with the Academy, uh, the International Academy of Emergency Dispatch, to review what we were doing uh, in order to uh, get their blessing. Uh, and I would definitely recommend you do that. You can't just go do this on your own if you're using Clawson. Um, and they, they took a deep dive review of what we were doing and deemed it under the pandemic situation acceptable and safe. Um, so we, we triage uh, 36. If we alpha or omega out, um, it then goes to uh, another level of decanting or screening again using that uh, sand filter analogy through ECNS. Um, um, or it could potentially go to paramedic level advice, which right now, again, is not an authorized thing by anybody. but something the academy was agreeable to just because we're in, essentially we have we have activated triage level one under pandemic 36 we're not using surveillance uh, for those of you that are familiar with it there's four levels of triage and so we're on level one triage uh, as we speak right now and you know we're probably close to pulling the trigger on level two which means that instead of just having alphas and, and omegas refer we could potentially add bravos and then as we progress potentially charlies and, and so on uh, although on card 36, Charlie's, we are deferring them to ECNS and then a, a telemedicine visit. So once we triage, uh, like I said, they'll either uh, talk to a paramedic um, or they'll um, speak to a nurse, go through the ECNS system, and then the nurse basically takes you, at, at the nurse advice puts you into that quadrant I spoke about, you know, face-to-face -face, uh, or remote type of visit and immediate or delayed. And based upon where the patient lands in that quadrant, the nurse using nursing judgment can decide what the appropriate uh, type of care uh, or locus of care is. And in this case, we can refer patients to make a, you know, uh, um, a scheduled visit with one of our, our uh, clinicians on another day. Um, you know, we can have what's called scheduled telemedicine in which we're actually working with our urgent care centers and our go healths um, to perform scheduled um, telemedicine visits. And that's usually with a PA or an NP. 
Um, and then um, we have um, on-demand uh, or unscheduled uh, visitation, which is with an emergency room physician. So essentially, we've kind of got created a virtual emergency room for those higher-level acuity. Uh, we use, you know, um, APP-level uh, services through for scheduled visits, and then um, again, we, um, you know, can do nurse advice as well as paramedic-level advice, um, and then obviously send an ambulance if if they. Uh, still insist on having it or if, uh, you know, the, the level of acuity, uh, you know, um, addresses them as needing it. So once that happens, let's say it's the on-demand telemedicine visit uh, or unscheduled, uh, our workflow is to uh, do a pre-screening. So the EMD, we, we're using all paramedics uh, EMDs right now. We have a special cohort uh, that are just doing these calls. Um, and essentially they're triaging and um, if it's a telemedicine visit, they will pre-screen. So think of it just like you go into the doctor's office. You have to fill out a form with your past medical history and allergies and all that kind of stuff. So our paramedics will collect that information on a document system we created uh, and then send that once the caller and that information over to our registrar. So again, think of it as like you walked up to, you filled out your form. Now you go up to the front office uh, of the physician's uh, desk and you, you know, give them your insurance card and and that's our registration process or what we call our registrar process. Uh, the registrar also acts as kind of our, um, our coordinator, our telehealth coordinator. So they'll register the patient and then they'll um, send out the links uh, to our uh, video platform to both the physician and the patient for the visit. Uh, the physician has a system in which they're notified in a queue management system uh, that shows what calls are waiting. So the physician can jump on, provide the visit, and then, um, uh, you know, like I said, in that flow, when once the physician visit's done, then, you know, we leave and check out. So there's a disposition that's that's done. The physician orders whatever the physician may want. Um, disposition to call, including if we have to send an ambulance, we will. But like I said, we're doing scripts and other kinds of things um, for patients in home testing, things like that, uh, to be able to, um, you know, send them. And in some cases, I, I believe somebody asked, you know, is there follow-up care? Yes, if, if need be, if it's deemed necessary, uh, we'll do follow-up care. Um, you know, it's, it's on a per patient basis right now. ECNS also has, you know, a follow-up mechanism um, that uh, is implemented if necessary. Given um, the pandemic level and uh, the volume we're dealing with, um, you know, um, we're only, in most cases in ECNS, every patient gets a call back. In this case, we're only calling back those that, that we, we deem as needing, or we tell them obviously to call 911 if their condition worsens again. So it's more of a, instead of us reaching out to them, we're relying on the patients to re reach back to us if there's additional follow-up care. How about the equipment, Jonathan? What, uh, what are you using for the, the telemedicine visit? Uh, walk us through the, is it a tablet? Is it a phone? Are you using a computer? How, how about the software and the, and the Wi-Fi signal? Yeah, all of the above. Um, so we built a system uh, that is designed to handle different platforms. Because one of the things we found in our community paramedic program that we've been doing, as I mentioned, since 2013 with telemedicine in the home is that only about 50% of the time on our equipment that's preloaded with the software, pre-configured, could we get a video visit to occur. And so we always had to default over to the telephone uh, as our backup system. In this case, you're trying to get a patient on the other end to be able to navigate the IT system on their smartphone uh, in order to uh, you know, initiate the video visit. Um, and so we have instructions um, for our registrars that they follow kind of a, 
uh, an on online help kind of tutorial that kind of helps the patient based on if they're Android or iOS, um, you know, troubleshoot um, if necessary. So you have to have a smartphone on the, on the patient facing side or a tablet. Uh, if not, obviously, we'll still do these visits via telephone. Um, we have no problem doing that. Uh, but again, because of billing without video, it's a very different rate. So if you have a video established, um, you actually have office rate parity. So you can charge the same amount that a doctor would charge as if you were in the office. In the office. Um, but um, with a telephone consult, it's a much lower level of reimbursement. Um, we're using currently a system called Amwell. Um, which was, uh, you know, really designed for hospital-to-hospital -hospital communication, um, but they've also been expanding into direct-to-consumer uh, as well as invite-in models. And so ours is an invite-in model with uh, Amwell um, that allows us to send links as well as uh, add telephone calls. We've, we've had multiple, you know, we're in New York City, so uh, we have 200 languages spoken, so we actually have language line and many of our calls have required us to bring a third party into the video chat uh, which is an interpreter uh, to be able to, you know, interpret for us uh, accordingly. Um, so that's, it, and we're doing this, uh, like our physicians, for example, can be on a home computer or an iPad. Um, our registrars are actually on computers that they're using to set these visits up. This is all web-based technology. Um, but I can tell you there's other tools out there that I mentioned on the, you know, um, on the, uh, on my slide deck that are out there that actually have this exact same functionality, uh, you know, uh, general devices as well as um, Pulsera, uh, and I'm sure there's others out there um, that have these invite-in models that are HIPAA compliant uh, that you can use, but there is a waiver currently in place under the telemedicine regs that allow you to use more off-the-shelf consumer-grade uh, video visit systems like FaceTime, those, those types of things. Uh, they come with their pros and their cons. Obviously, FaceTime can only be used on iOS, um, and so, uh, and, and, you know, there's more and more coming out with concerns over things like Zoom uh, in terms of security and making sure that you, if you're going to use that as a platform, you have to make sure you change the default security settings, uh, things like that. So, um, you know, but it, 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 uh, we've designed a platform that can really use anything. The patient can also use a regular home computer as well. I, I failed to mention that. So basically, if they have a piece of technology and they, the, hopefully they know enough to be able to connect, it's good. Um, obviously, we're relying on whatever the patient has on their end for uh, signal, um, and I believe that's probably the largest problem of the 50% uh, connectivity that we see. Uh, I'd say a majority of the problems are related to connectivity and cellular bandwidth uh, capabilities, uh, and that's using uh, a system. We're not on FirstNet, but we are on Verizon QoS, um, where we have uh, preemption for data and cellular activity uh, due to our medical and, and public safety status. And even with that, we still have challenges. We are testing FirstNet out in our market, but the bottom line is actually we're testing another device from Alario um, that um, allows us to uh, use multiple cellular carriers in one device and the device manages it. So uh, our experience with that, um, you know, the, essentially you have multiple cell phones all talking at the same time with a computer deciding who has, you know, on different carriers you have talking to AT&T first now, you're talking to Verizon QoS, you're talking to um, T-Mobile, and I believe they're coming out with a public safety class system, um, and you're listening and talking to all those channels at the same time, and then the device flips you between whoever has the strongest signal. And so far, we've been testing this for a couple of months now um, with telemetry and, and uh, telemedicine and, um, you know, our ePCR systems, and it's, it's solved our problem. So, um, you know, look at that technology uh, to potentially help you uh, with this as well, 
Uh, rural settings, I think, are going to be more challenging just because of the data throughput issues and the ability to do video. And that's why I, I believe in my ask you guys saw in the call to action. The other thing we need is parity for uh, payment, but for tele telephone visits for us in the 911 setting. We don't have to do that for everybody, but we need a waiver just for us so that, you know, if the uh, rural crew can only do a landline phone um, to the physician that, you know, that the EMS crew can still bill for that and the physician can have office visit parity for that. Let's talk about the business uh, side of, of this program for just a second. David has an interesting question. Isn't this service just turning uh, the EMS uh, uh, service into a physician provider service? Uh, the next concern from hospitals you service with EMS might be that you are steering patients away from their facilities by caring for them up front. Um, again, this uh, is not an issue currently during COVID as they are overloaded, but how about looking uh, looking down the line in the future? Well, it actually is an issue during COVID and, and there are uh, those issues don't go away. So just like I'm sure we deal with these issues, uh, you know, in your EMS system. So if you have a patient that's uh, undomiciled, meaning they don't have a, a you know a hospital that they would typically go to. Uh, many community EMS systems have instituted kind of a round robin type of situation. Um, the way we're dealing with this um, through our partners um, is we um, uh, the patients are being screened for attribution as part of uh, the downgrading. So uh, we didn't go into that in terms of how we get our calls, but. Um, there's a primary PSAP sending to us, and we're actually not a PSAP. Um, we're a, I call it emergency communications center, but we actually don't have 911 trunks in our center, and that's why I'm asking for that waiver, uh, because obviously we're doing uh, emergency medical communications center um, where, um, you know, the calls we're doing should also be eligible for ET3, and that's the other thing I was asking about. Um, but to your point, so that when we get our call, the call has been um, triaged as low acuity and having has attribution for our health system. So the patient says, I want to go to a hospital Northwell owns. That's when we get the call transferred to us. Um, if the patient does not have, uh, again, um, they're not attributed to a site, then it's the exact same thing. It's a round robin uh, going to the different telemedicine providers uh, in the community that we're serving. Um, that uh, enables that parity and addresses that issue. You mentioned the gig, uh, gig economy earlier. We, uh, one of our attendees is asking, what would you suggest for some of us EMS providers or physicians who cannot work in the field anymore but would like to still contribute by helping with telemedicine or telehealth? It sounds like this on-demand or gig economy type service would be good for me. Yeah, so... Um, I'm, I'm working with, uh, I'm fortunate enough to, to know many, many of the EMS greats in the world. And there's a lot of people with a lot of brain power working on some of these issues. And, and actually, I was reached out to by uh, uh, Dr. Joe Ryan, who used to be the formal medical director of Sunstar. He was actually my medical director when I was a paramedic at Sunstar in the early 90s and then moved around the country and eventually was at REMSA. Um, and he has, uh, a, you know, working on a concept for uh, something just like this for a voluntary, uh, you know, voluntary medical staff. So, you know, people are asking the volunteer around the country. Um, we could easily potentially put a volunteer service together um, and, uh, you know, help provide some of these services. But absolutely, I think this could extend the career for physicians. It could extend careers for paramedics. could extend careers for nursing to get into the, these telehealth um, situations. And, and quite honestly, 
um, you know, um, the genie is out of the bottle and uh, with telemedicine. And if we honestly think, um, you know, things are going to change after COVID, I, I'd be very, very surprised. This is going to have a, uh, I think this is going to fundamentally um, impact how healthcare is delivered in the United States on the go forward. Um, and, um, you know, many of the things that are happening now and, and many people are pivoting to telemedicine and uh, that's why we jumped on board as quickly as possible, um, you know, because obviously that means less transports, that means lower revenue, that means there's all kinds of implications of this um, that uh, I'm, I'm sure are unintended consequences because we, we want to be able to provide and, and respond to these patients effectively. Um, and, you know, but that's the, uh, that's, you know, that's the piece to this. So, um, you know, I, I think that this could, just like community paramedicine, extends the opportunities for for paramedics uh, beyond, you know, their their 911 field days, I think this absolutely could have opportunities for for us. And quite honestly, I think as we prove this out and bake this out, there's no reason why paramedics shouldn't be able to do some of this type of work as well as nurses uh, for and for reimbursable services. It doesn't just have to be a QHP. Okay, we're going to start to wrap up for today, Jonathan. What would you say has been your biggest hurdle uh, in this uh, in the process of launching this program? I think it was probably setting up the Part A physician billing side of this. Uh, you know, EMS we're not we're not we're not providers or part you know uh, Part A we're typically Part D suppliers, and so um, you know I um, I think that was the hardest part because I had to take a crash course on physician billing and I still don't know I probably know one tenth of what I need to know, um, and I, I, we will learn quickly. And I'm fortunate enough in our organization to have a tremendous amount of resources that are available to us and working on this as we speak, um, you know, to, to ensure that um, we'll be able to compliantly uh, uh, build these services, um, you know, as, as we move forward and, and actually start to transition away from, you know, the disaster and the pandemic. And, you know, I think a lot of us believe that uh, what we've set up is, is here and here to stay going forward. Um, as long as, you know, hopefully the, the telemedicine waivers and some of the other waivers will remain. Jonathan, we can't thank you enough for uh, putting together this presentation and, and staying overtime to help us field all the questions coming in. Uh, we do have an upcoming podcast with Jonathan, and we're going to get to uh, the remainder of, of the questions that we were not uh, able to get to today. So keep an, keep an eye on emsworld.com slash podcasts. That will be uh, coming up in uh, the next few days. I'm also going to give out that phone number one more time, 516 329 nine three three zero and just enter your email address and jonathan, uh, jonathan will uh, send you some printed materials that go along with this presentation one more time we would like to thank mckesson for sponsoring today's webinar and bringing this presentation to you jonathan thanks again any closing comments before we sign off for today no just thank you for the opportunity uh as i mentioned before everyone's asking what can you do for new york uh, what you can do for New York is, you know, take the lessons learned um, and some of the systems we've talked about today and please implement them for your staff, for your team, for your patients. Um, you know, I know this is this is tough for a lot of folks, especially those that aren't seeing any volume and aren't seeing this tsunami. Um, I, I pray to God that we're flattening the curve in those communities, but you also need to be prepared just in case it doesn't. So I think those would be my, my, my last parting advice. Thank you so much. One final note to our audience. Uh, we have recorded the webinar. This will be archived and available shortly at emsworld.com slash webinars. 
again, um, I would encourage our listeners to bookmark that page, keep coming back to it. We are posting the archives of these presentations as they come available, uh, as well as scheduling new webinars that are designed to keep you informed on the uh, coronavirus pandemic and, and how to stay safe. Our next webinar is going to be Thursday, uh, April 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern. We have Margaret Carman uh, joining us from the University of North Carolina School of Nursing. Margaret is going to be speaking on healthcare education in the COVID pandemic, specifically on the role of using online patient simulations. Uh, again, thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, we appreciate what you're doing every day in the field. Please stay safe, and uh, we'll talk to you on the next webinar. Have a great day. Thanks, John. Thank you. Be safe, everybody. Stay well. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 